and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, this week, James Bond is still trying to get home from Jamaica with all the flights cancelled around the world. So <laughs> I'm your feeling host, James Page from MI6. Uh, this week, I managed to find a screening of the rhythm section so I could self-isolate. <laughs> Cruel. That probably won't make me edit. <laughs> I should introduce everybody, shouldn't I, before I rattle on too much longer. Uh, this week, we are joined by David Lee, Dr. Lisa Funnel, and Calvin Dyson. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi there, David Lee here. I run the Jameson Dossier, and instead of my normal rum and coke drink, I've got a gin and tonic because I want to save the rum for the end of the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hi, I'm Lisa Funnel, uh, Dr. Lisa Funnel, as you said. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds and the editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. And I'm Calvin Dyson, and I run the Calvin Dyson YouTube channel, where it is me talking and reviewing about all things Bond, from the films to the books to the games. Um, so as uh, most of us are locked at home, uh, I thought, well, you know, we should do some um, reflections um, on past Bond stuff rather than getting too tied up in the, the comings and goings. So um, one of the things we've often touched about in the podcast over the, over the episodes we've done, it's like this, this gap in fandom between License to Kill and Goldeneye, um, obviously a six-year gap between films, but also a gap in people becoming fans because when License to Kill came out, it was a 15 certificate in the UK, which meant a lot of kids couldn't go and see it. So the gap was actually a lot longer. And I was one of those kids that couldn't get in to see License to Kill. And so we had to wait to GoldenEye. So I was one of the GoldenEye generation. I think Mark Mark's talked about this too in the past. So I wanted to go back because 25 years has kind of just disappeared um, for me anyway, uh, since it came out. Um, and it's quite funny to look back at what the world looked like in 1995 because I was on YouTube looking at like some things that you know shows that run and everything. So I thought before we kick this off, we'll frame it as to what was happening. I mean, I'm coming from the perspective as uh, a kid in the UK at the time. So in November 95, the big story was Princess Diana's interview on the BBC. If anybody remembers that where she talks about yeah, Prince Charles's affairs and stuff. That was the week before the film came out. Wow. Um, in the box office, the popular films towards the end of that year were Waterworld, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Apollo 13, Mortal Kombat, Braveheart. Good grief. Was it that long I ago? Apollo 13 is the one that comes out of that. Well, I think yeah. out of that list. <laughs> and... Um, Musically, uh, albums in the top 10 charts were uh, Madonna, Meatloaf, Elton John, and Queen. Huh. So um, feels like a that kind of, to me, makes it feel a lot longer ago. Going around the table, I guess, to begin with, would you like to take it in turns to, I guess, your experience of GoldenEye, how you came about it? Not everybody would have seen it at the theater, I'm sure. Um, and how you came across this new era in the Bond franchise, the for me, it 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 kind of got me back into Bond in a way because through through the eighties, the, the late the last few Roger Moore films, uh, I just didn't do it for me. I I kind of liked uh, the Living Daylights, and but I I actually didn't go to see a License to Kill at the cinema. I I thought. 
at the time that I, I, I was done with Bond. And I, I'm, I'm not quite sure why that was. It's, you know, uh, it's like uh, I, I was... I was in my late teens and uh, early twenties in the in the eighties, and so uh, you know, I, I guess I had other priorities and other interests at the time, and so I, I kind of um, fell away from my interest in Bond. And uh, so after the gap, uh, and I think the first thing is that I was quite surprised that there was a new Bond film coming out. I, I really did think that it was probably over at that stage. And uh, I, I was interested because of what the producer, what the producers were saying about it, because, uh, you know, they wanted to, they, they, I, I, as far as I can remember, they, they said they wanted to tone down the, the gadgets and so on. Uh, they wanted to make it more serious and so on. And w when you actually see it, you know, I, I don't think they managed to do that at all. And I, I don't think they were aiming to do that at all. They were just uh, uh, looking to, to cast um, an actor who who uh, you know, was a pretty good James Bond. Uh, Pierce Brosnan isn't my favourite Bond, but uh, he's, he's an okay Bond. But uh, I... I I, but when I saw the film, I, I was pretty disappointed, and it's not—it's not one of my favourite. And I would say, you know, it, it's not even my favourite of the the Brosnan bonds. Ooh, that's fighting words. Yeah, that's that's controversial to say. Huh? Yeah, I know. I, it, it, it it really upsets some people. So <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, world is not enough, isn't it? Is your preferred brosnan bond am i right yes it is yes it is. yes yeah. god you listen to me <laughs> <laughs> i remember that from a few podcasts ago yeah yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's right yeah uh well i guess if i'm to talk about uh how i came to know goldeneye uh, this was the first bond film that was released in my lifetime so I was born a few oh. months after. Can I just interrupt you, Calvin? Because yeah, sure. my, mine is Thunderball. Oh, wow. Mine's Moonraker. <laughs> mine, mine was Moonraker. Mm. So. Well, I um, was born a few months after License to Kill, and I was definitely too young to be a Bond fan <laughs> when Goldeneye first came out. So. I only really became a Bond fan in like the late 90s and The World Is Not Enough was the first one that I have a real memory of uh, publicity uh, building up to um, the release of. I do remember specifically seeing Goldeneye because I remember when I was getting into Bond and Moonraker and Diamonds Are Forever were the first ones that I saw. I remember sort of saying, oh, I like the this James Bond thing and Mum was like, oh, Grandma's got one of those. Why don't you watch Goldeneye? And I remember it being um, quite a different experience, uh, particularly seeing Xenia on a top mounting that Admiral at one point on the bed. Oh, and it's like, God, oh, yeah. this isn't Moonraker. <laughs> but it's still, I, I, I loved it at the time, and it's to this day, it's one of my very favourites. The thing that I really can't remember is whether, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the game later on, but... Growing up in the late '90s, I can't remember whether I was aware of whether I was aware of the film or the video game first because I mm -hmm. right. have very vivid memories of playing that game as well. Um, but I do remember specifically, yeah, seeing the film on VHS. 
Yeah, and I can echo that sentiment. I remember playing the game more clearly than when I first watched the movie. And I rewatched it last night and just the music, I have so many issues with the music in this film um, (laughs) or the lack thereof or whatever they were trying to do there. But the sounds reminded me of the video game and not vice versa. Um, And so for me, I watched the Roger Moore James Bond films with my dad, and we always liked a more witty style of James Bond. I never got into the Timothy Dalton uh, Bond films, and I know there are certain people who are diehard Dalton fans, and that is okay. (laughs) I'm not one of them, and and we can coexist in this world, and that's okay. Uh, So for me, when I see Pierce Brosnan, I see that lightness, and he is maybe the first actor that I simply look at and see Bond. He just looks the part. And I was watching it last night, just some of the, 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 the beginning shots of him, maybe not hanging upside down, he looked like Bond, but when he was right side up and he was you know, running towards like a corner and looking a, 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 around the corner, he just looked and felt like Bond to me. And I thought that this was a really good film to reintroduce Bond. And it was a lot more energetic. It had a, a heck of a lot more action uh, to it. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about women, but we really have the reemergence of sort of the 1960s dynamic of having sort of a Bond girl, Bond heroine, however we want to term her. I'm still trying to work on what I should call her. Um, and of course, having a female Bond villain and sort of having sort of the good versus bad woman dynamic taking place and having women play um, a more significant and prominent role. We have a strong female villain who without her, um, I don't think the plot would have happened. And of course, we have Natalia Simonova, who without her being the brains of, of the, the mission, I don't think the mission would have been completed. And so for me, there's an excitement seeing in Goldeneye, we're seeing this pivot towards, I think, stronger, um, more um, empowered, and and at least script-wise, being more invested in stronger women doing stuff in a Bond film. And when I think about the changes that are happening over the six-year period, I think the film did a good job in saying there's a seven-year gap from the starting point to the end point. And there's a lot of talk about geopolitics. But this film is really a lot about gender politics, about reframing this world and saying the world has changed. Women who are part of that world have changed. You have Money Penny coming in and critiquing Bond for sexual harassment, but doing it in a way that's playful. And of course, Judy Dench coming in. um, with her amazing line about calling him a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur, dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War, and having Bond sort of sitting there being like, point taken. And so I really felt as though the Bond films of, of the 1990s, really starting with Goldeneye, provide us with uh, a different type of shift. And so Bond has new challenges, and it's not just challenges with the changing world politically, but changing with the dynamics of women within that world. And I think that makes for um, a lot more interesting um, uh, character dynamics and interplay than simply having Bond constantly one-upping the women in his life and women simply tagging along along. Um, um, I, I, I just keep thinking of Stacey Sutton just tagging along and screaming versus someone like uh, <laughs> Natalia yeah, yeah. Like screaming Bond, like do something like you need to figure this out. You need to wake up, like get us out of here. And I felt that her representation um, really offered that opportunity to have a woman 
uh, be bold and she's sweaty. Both women are sweaty. Like I'm like, I like sweat when women are doing stuff. You should be sweaty and messy. I just found, I, I, I thought it was a breath of fresh air with the way that, that women are being presented uh, in the film. I do love it when uh, Bond and Natalia sort of come face to face for the first time right after the helicopter crash. The, uh, the first thing she does is like kick him in his shin and run away. Right. I <laughs> love that moment. So, I mean, having a six-year gap um, after Licensed Kill and the legal stuff and nobody, and as you say, David, at the time, a lot of fandom were like, was this it? Is this what we're done? Um, there was a lot of talk about Bond, the character, being on trial, but there's also like the franchise was on trial to some degree because nobody knew if this was going to be successful or not. Yeah, well, because right. well, it, it, it's really uh, a new era post-Cubby Broccoli, isn't it? And uh, Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I guess the big question was, uh, was the franchise in capable hands or uh, was it just going to crumble? And, uh, you know, in retrospect, a lot of it has been made out of, you know, Goldeneye being a reappraisal of the character and is the character still relevant and, you know, the world around him moving but him staying the same. Um, You could argue that there's actually more dynamics between the characters and the shifting power there in Goldeneye than there has been in any film since. You know, mm-hmm. and all the uproar about having a female double O in No Time to Die was a big, you know, issue for a lot of people. But if you watch Goldeneye now, I mean, it's like it's way more in your face. Bond's on the back foot a lot of the film. Um, you know, other characters have, um, I think, more presence and they kind of push him around a little bit than in any Bond film since. So hmm. in that I regard, think- I think... I, th- I just want to say that I think it's interesting to kind of look at it from that perspective and like what Lisa was saying about this is where we have Judy Dench's great sexist, misogynist dinosaur line really calling Bond out and people are sort of making fun of him throughout. And I just think that's interesting because that conversation has come up recently in some of the promotional material for No Time to Die that we've been seeing with people from certain places complaining about Lashana Lynch's character being too cocky and putting Bond down, making a comment about his knee, all that kind of stuff. And I I just find it interesting because I thought that GoldenEye sort of broke that barrier and I thought we all sort of agreed that that was fine, but apparently not. I just think it's interesting going back to GoldenEye and viewing it through, through through those glasses. And I also think just to, to, to push this forward, I really think the next film, Tomorrow Never Dies, in some ways picks this up. When I look at, I love Michelle Yeoh's character, Waylon, who's only really in half the movie. If she was in more of the movie, it would be the story of Waylon because she's far more capable physically. She has the great arsenal of spy gadgets and it's Bond who's actually made fun of um, Mm. when he starts setting off. He is the butt of the jokes, whereas in the past, he's the one who might go up to someone like Dr. Holly Goodhead and play with all her gadgets and say, look, I found you out. And so I do feel like there's a connection here between at least these first two Bond films. And then, I mean, when I think about um, the world is not enough. It, it does continue that with Electra King coming in, masquerading as a Bond girl, seducing Bond, seducing M, albeit in different ways, and seducing us, the audience, with them to believe that she's sort of the stereotypical damsel in distress, only to turn around and, and attack both of them. And so you do have uh, Bond really being on his heels in these first three films. I think Die Another Day is a little bit different, but these first, even the ones of the 90s then, 
again, um, we can talk about the fact that Bond is constantly on his heels. And it's interesting to see how with the rebooting of the Craig era, if, when, and how that changes as if um, those dynamics, and I don't think those dynamics really sort of remain fully, although Vesper Lynn does um, that job of being a bit of a damsel in distress, but not to the same degree. She doesn't necessarily have malicious intent and she genuinely has feelings for Bond. But you can definitely see a very specific dynamic in these first three Brosnan era films that is not necessarily carried forward into the next era. Mm. I was thinking uh, if you watch them back to back, uh, to your point, Lisa, License to Kill is like the antithesis of this film because Bond's out there on his own doing his own thing and he's south of the border, right? And it's a man's world and they make a big point of this in the film that, you know, and so if you look at License to Kill back to back with Golden Knight, it's almost a 180 mm-hmm. um, on how Bond is treated by the people around him or how he treats the people around him. It's like completely different. So I think GoldenEye has probably had, um, in terms of impact on the franchise, under the surface, I think there's been a lot of stuff that's rippled through films subsequent to it that's not wasn't particularly obvious at the time. Mm-hmm. Now it's obvious because we can look back at it. But um, I think the way that they frame the character, I think a lot of the media at the time was like, well, if the Cold War's over and Russia isn't the enemy, is Bond you know, a viable character or not? I think that was a distraction. The real difference is, you know, how does he interplay with other people in the world, not who the enemy is. Uh, it's often who his allies are that changes just as importantly. Mm. Maybe that, that whole argument, because I, I do remember seeing that a lot on TV at the time, maybe a lot of that was fed to the media just to get them talking about it. Right. Because... Um, because that that was everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and and if you look back at the franchise, how many times has Bond got up as Russia as the enemy? Um, mm. Zero, zero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a rogue gen. It's a rogue general or something else. It's not the state. It's never yeah, the yeah, state. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So the whole conceit was baseless, really. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And especially across like the Moore and the Dalton eras, there is an increasing, is, I think it's a general Gogol, um, who's sort of the figure who tends to be in a whole bunch of them, who looks at Bond in a very positive light, thanks Bond for, um, you know, helping to bring back, whether it's, you know, the jewels or has become more strongly reliant on Bond. And you can see his change and his progression over the time of appreciating what Bond can do. And that's a very different um, idea and impression than this idea that it's sort of Bond in Britain against, you know, the Soviet Union when um, I don't think the films really necessarily show that. Mm. No. I think the films were quite forward thinking, really, because mm-hmm. obviously when you look at the Fleming stuff, it is just, oh, if they're Russian, they're bad. And uh, I think <laughs> the films were, I think, isn't there a thing about Cubby Broccoli was, uh, had the attitude that one day these films will be shown in Russia, so... We're yep. going to make the bad guys something else, not just by yeah. virtue of their nationality. But, but I, I mean, uh, I, I think mo- most um, uh, mo- most significantly, the, the the plot of of from Russia with love uh, mm. wasn't bond against the Russians and Smirsh. It was changed changed to Spectre, and uh, mm. so yeah, they they didn't want to they didn't want to make Russia the enemy. They wanted to make uh, Spectre. The enemy is some uh, 
you know, an imaginary criminal organization that would that uh, would have its own agenda and pulling the strings and just uh, pitting Russia and, and the West against each other. So, yeah, absolutely. I think they were actually shown in Russia um, to, and, and not shown widely like um, uh, cinematically in theaters, but I who wrote it? Was it was it Thomas Bartlett? He wrote a paper for one of my books on um, Tatiana Romanova, the screening of the Russian woman. And I'm attributing it to him because I'm not sure where else I would have read it. But I think he was talking about how some of those films were actually shown to like the Russian elite at the time. And they were in circulation, hmm. like at like the higher level, but never in circulation with like mass audiences. So there, there, there may have been that idea that you don't want to create um, more, more tension than, than is necessary. Now, it's, it's typical though of anywhere, isn't it though? It's like, um, the thing, oh yeah, yeah. Bond films, they're great, but we're not going to let, we're not going to let all the common people uh, watch them. They, mm-hmm. they might give them some good ideas. Right. <laughs> so um, we mentioned the games up front, and um, I pulled up an interesting stat, which I thought you might like, which was Goldeneye at the global box office did $355 million, mm. which was a lot because it was a budget of 60 So, I mean, return on investment was great. The game, right, estimates are global revenue from the game, from the Nintendo 64, $250 million. Ooh. Not bad. And wow. it, did not, it did not have a $60 million production budget. No, mm. no. And they didn't have to give 40 to 50% of the money off to a cinema distribution and cinema chains. So more money, more profit was actually made off the game than the film. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, the, the GoldenEye game kind of goes beyond the movie. Obviously, the game was only released in 1997. So it's like the slowest movie tie in second to From Russia with Love, which came out a good like 40 years after <laughs> right. that film came out. But I think, yeah, when you're talking about the GoldenEye game, it is such like it is just one of those iconic pieces of gaming that will be uttered in the same breath with like, you know, Super Mario Brothers or whatever, just a real iconic thing in its own right. Uh, And I think a a good part of the reason why people fondly remember this film, or certainly people of my sort of age and generation. Well, I can say I've played Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) 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 It's interesting because I think... mm, I mean, I've taught my Bond class for maybe seven years. And so, I mean, I keep getting older and they keep staying the same age. So they're of a different generation. (laughs) Um, But there's always students in my class who've played the game um, Mm. and who played the game oftentimes, like remember it like distinctly. And some of them have never actually um, watched a Bond film before coming into my class. And I always find that quite fascinating, just like they, and I always mention this, the fact that they've seen the um, Austin Power films and never seen Mm. Bond films. And so I I always wonder what it must be like sitting there watching like Goldfinger and like seeing the movie and being like, oh, so this is where all the jokes come from. But I do (laughs) think there is something about this game, the first uh, Bond video game that looked and felt like a Bond video game. Um, And it was in the first person shooter uh, style, so you could actually be Bond, and I think compared to um, a lot of the other secondary market products, whether it's the James Bond Junior cartoon, whether it's any right. sort of comics that were released before, even Ian Fleming's novels, 
you don't have the same level of control and investment. Like I can want Bond to do amazing things and I can see and read Bond do amazing things, but I can't actually be um, um, a, a part of it. And that's what video game culture allows us to do. We are uh, part of these games and we can be James Bond and the success of the mission or its failure depends on us. And that's a different level of investment. And I think what the game did really well was put us in that position. And maybe that's the reason why so many of us have these fond memories or possibly why I remember the game more than the movie is because of the fact like I remember what it felt like to play the game and that experience. And that's very different than sitting back in a movie theater or sitting at home and watching the movie on, on your screen. Mm, that's very true. And like the multiplayer for GoldenEye, especially like just to your point about the memories, yeah. like that is like so vivid in my mind, like getting together with some friends in the same room and playing a game together, which is yeah. seems so alien now. But that I mean, that multiplayer is iconic and just the mechanics of it was so finely tuned. It was a phenomenal game. And you know, maybe if it did have a different skin, if it was, you know, the diehard tie-in first-person mm-hmm. shooter or or something, I'm sure it would have been equally as successful. Um, yeah, could be. Yeah, but I think it's I think it is interesting that that game kind of gave GoldenEye a brand of its own. I would say I think certainly the games have tried to capitalize on that brand several times, GoldenEye Rogue Agent and GoldenEye Reloaded, despite us never having an official remake or re-release of the game on a modern platform. Um, Mm -hmm. But the GoldenEye name in gaming does or did have a certain cachet to it. And if they released a game with GoldenEye in the title, people would sit up and take notice. Yeah. Have you seen the clip of Jimmy Fallon when he was interviewing Pierce Brosnan (laughs) and he invited him to play Goldeneye with him? And it's probably one of my, my, like I, like that's a bucket list item that I probably will never reach, but just that, (laughs) but just seeing them play and how giddy Jimmy Fallon was and how gracious Pierce Brosnan was, because he couldn't really sort of figure out, he was doing a lot of chopping, right? And he was so fun and personable when he was going through it. And for me, like, that's like a digital moment capturing the excitement that many of us had and just being able to right. live vicariously through Jimmy Fallon having that moment. It just mm. reminded me of how much I like the game. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I was going to say, I just pulled up the numbers. It was, um, they sold 8.1 million copies on the N64, which considering it only came out for one platform, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, at the That's time good. when everybody else is buying PlayStation ones, um, Mm. That's amazing. My my first gaming platform was uh, a Sinclair ZX81, and you had to uh, load the games uh, from a cassette Off tape. tape. Uh, yep. Well, I was a Commodore 64 kid, so we're yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. But uh, at least what, what you were saying about uh, Pierce Brosnan being being gracious, I, I think you, you said. Uh, I think he's always done very, 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 very well. Uh, in interviews and so on, he, he seems like a super nice bloke, and I, I think that probably helped the, the whole franchise because uh, in you know with with Daniel Craig, for example, you know he, he always comes a bit across as a bit grumpy, and you know he's always swearing his head off, uh, you know, which I, I I'm fine with, but it puts a lot of people off. And uh, but you know Brosnan, he, he's always seemed like a super like a like super likable bloke you know somebody you can um, have, have a beer with and uh, i don't think all actors come across like that 
And I think that also reflects their portrayals of Bond because, you know, Daniel Craig's Bond is very moody. <laughs> and Absolutely, he's very sort of is. Rough around, he's rough around the edges. He's not what you would expect a typical Bond to be. And I think Daniel Craig definitely matches that with um, his presence as, as a celebrity, the way that he holds himself, some of the things he said about never playing James Bond again and then coming back to it. And then I think Pierce Brosnan's is is somewhat a reflection of his personality. He is somebody that is incredibly charming and charismatic. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I love Pierce Brosnan as Bond is that he does have this this charisma. And I I buy into it that women find him attractive. Whereas I kind of struggle with some of the other Bonds where I'm like, really? You're, you're, he's appealing? Uh, but I look at <laughs> Pierce Brosnan and I'm like, I get it. I get why women like you. Because he just has that charisma. And I think when I was watching it last night, one of the things I really liked about it was the representation of Q and the development of their relationship. So he shows up in a wheelchair with um, the, the cast on his leg and Q is just incredibly playful. And you can see him just enjoying this job and getting to play with these gadgets and chastising Bond. And there is like a grandpa-son dynamic there. You're getting sort of the, you, eventually you get the mother-son dynamic with, with Bond, but that's more so in, in the Craig era. But here you sort of get like that grandpa-son playful dynamic that I thought was incredibly endearing. And I thought that they were being, as you said, you know, were they going to step away from gadgets? They went the other way by having, you know, a gadget explode and a guy is sort of uh, connected. Um, I think he's, he like face plants into like a glass shield or he's like in a, in a, in a phone box. That's <laughs> that's, I was going to say, that's a thing that we used to call phone boxes. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking of the word. I was like, what is that? <laughs> but I mean, there's just, there, there was a lot of playfulness with it and again as somebody who likes more witty bonds that's something that's more appealing to me and I feel as though the Brosnan films had a lot more energy excitement and adventure and I feel as though my biggest critique of the Daniel Craig era is that it doesn't have some of that like they're just so dark and serious and moody which is definitely aligned with say the Batman Begins trilogy um, but I really sort of have hoped with the Craig era films that we might get a standalone narrative or something that's just a little bit lighter. I'm not sure if we're going to get there. Maybe this is just not our era for it, but spoiler, spoiler alert. Uh, no, Lisa, if, if you, if you couldn't get phone box, just imagine your students, <laughs> I feel like I can imagine on a journal somebody, one of my students will be like, What was that glass thing that they were in? Like, oh, no. Yeah. And, and also, um, you, you were talking about um, you know, how attractive uh, Pierce Brosnan was compared with the other actors. And um, in fact, um, my, my wife is a bit different to you in that, and uh, that. Uh, she, she does find Daniel Craig attractive, and I, I remember, and he, it was the day I think it was the day that he was actually announced as Bond, and I I said to her, uh, "This guy's the new Bond," because I, I I wasn't actually sure whether he was the right choice at, at that time. I didn't know him as an actor, and um, his look didn't didn't convince me. And um, so I said, "Well, uh, what do you reckon to this guy as Bond?" And she isn't a, a fan of Bond at all. She just uh, kind of puts up with me and, uh, and mm-hmm. sometimes work 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 it all out. But uh, and she <laughs> she said, 
yes, cool. That is born. <laughs> and, and that so so I thought, okay, right. I know she's got a, a great choice in men, so yeah, Daniel Craig is born. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I have to admit that, uh, so one year I taught this great group of students. I mean, I had a Lazenby fan club in my class. I had a group of students and, and one of their service dogs, um, who was like my favorite student of all. I mean, that dog paid attention, favorite student. Uh, but they, they were this Lazenby fan club and they ended up getting me two framed pictures of Pierce Brosnan. And I don't think I was talking that much about Pierce Brosnan, but they're in my office, like just these funny pictures of Pierce Brosnan. And so I always try to take pictures and post on social media, you know, around those pictures. But I think I, I spoke about him a lot. And I mean, Daniel Craig is also an attractive man. So I'm not going to knock the Bond franchise for selecting him. And I think a lot of people really um, liked the institution of a female gaze in Casino Royale and gazed at Bond in a very longing way. Um, and, and possibly a lot of men too. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the sex appeal of Bond, I never really got it until maybe like the 1990s. So do you think in terms of like bringing the film, you know, after such a big gap and having, do you think it's fair to say they were trying to split the difference with Brosnan's Bond in GoldenEye? that they were going to try and appeal to some of the Connery fans by going back to the formula a little bit after Dalton. And then they were trying to appeal to the Moore era by having a bit of levity in there. Oh, that's definitely one of the uh, things that I hear people complain about Brosnan quite a lot, that yeah. he tries to be jack of all trades, a master of none sort of thing. Uh, I think he's a really successful Bond. Uh, dare I say I think he's the best, even if he's my favorite? Pure, like Primarily because he does combine all of those great elements, and I buy him when he's being witty and funny, and I buy him when he's being ruthless and cold, and I by him when he's with the female star and uh i i think the q scene in goldeneye is absolutely the best q scene in the entire series with bond as he's coming across as the playboy tinkering with the gadgets and stuff q's coming across wacky inventor um i i think he's a perfect combination of so many of the great elements that came before him yeah i i i think he's i think he's a good bond um but I, I would have liked to have seen him do a really, really good script because I think he was let down by, I th really think he was let down by the scripts that he, he did. And I think if he had been given stronger scripts, he, he, could, have, he could have been uh, easily the best Bond, yeah. Mm. I, think, I think it's fair to say Goldeneye was probably his best script. Mm. Hmm. Would yeah. you disagree? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I just don't get GoldenEye. It just doesn't do it for me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I, know. I don't know what to say to that. I think he's, I, I think he marries with this script and direction really well. I rewatched The World Is Not Enough recently, which is a film that I love and adore, but his acting style certainly gets hammier as his tenure goes on and there are some very soap opera moments in the world is not enough and his intonation, his reactions can be a bit much here. I feel like maybe he's just instinctively holding it back. Maybe he's still a bit awkward or maybe he's being directed that way. I don't know, but 
I think this is his best performance as Bond and it marries very well with the script and the direction and the whole vibe that they're going for. And I think I like the vibe, not the music for it, but the act, like, <laughs> I just wanted a better soundtrack. I, I, I can't I, get over I think the you're not song. the only person who doesn't like the okay. music. Mm. Like I, I can definitely see why they went towards David Arnold and I love the music for Tomorrow Never Dies. So this one, I was struggling a little bit with it. But there were so many moments within this movie. Like, I like the idea of James Bond walking through, like, almost like that graveyard of statues and these falling monuments of of the past. I think the film was really trying to show us that the world has changed, and it did so in a way that was that was visually stunning. I liked seeing James Bond um, in... Um, oh, that's not a tractor. What's that big machine that shoots? A and tank. he's like, tank, there you go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Good. Bomb, you yeah. know, I, I, I went through Skyfall and all, all this kind of thing. I was thinking of the Caterpillar, uh, what's it called? <laughs> Digger. Dig, thing. Digger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was, that was it, wrong called. film. <laughs> Tank. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I like the scene of him in the tank and sort of chasing through and, you know, the reaction. They did a really good job showing Natalia's face, you know, with Bond mm. going through. But he's also someone who's being very destructive. And that's different from the scene where Bond is um, at the beginning of The World Is Not Enough with the first attack on London where, you know, you watch it and it's kind of scary because there's a chase sequence going on. But at the same time, I think the most destruction that he does is go through just a restaurant. This is him, you know, supposedly in in this tank, like destroying infrastructure and taking down monuments and and, and going out into the world and uh, taking down almost like the old order and and ushering in a new one and having, you know, some complications of who's an ally and who's a foe. And I think that really sets off the bras in an era where we're not really sure. And I think it also sets off an era... Because for me, I think of eras also in terms of Judy Dench. The Judy Dench era is really full of these stories of uh, having traitors on the inside, these these dual agents or double agents who um, give this impression that they are loyal, say, to queen and country, but they're working for different types of purposes. And you end up getting, you know, these contrasts with Bond throughout. And I really liked the casting of Sean Bean. Now, for me, Sean Bean's a living spoiler. He dies in every film. Um <laughs> Living spoiler, I love it. (laughs) Right? Like, you see him and you're like, he's going to die. It's like Game of Thrones. It was like, just tell me which episode he's going to die in because it was going (laughs) to come across, right? But I did know that he would last, but I thought it was like a really great contrast between, you know, Bond being loyal to queen and country and then having somebody else with a different emotional motivation due to just his family was traumatized um, and he wanted revenge and... It reminds me a lot of the connection in Man with the Golden Gun between Bond and Scaramanga. And I think one of the reasons why I like Man with the Golden Gun is by having a villain who's supposed to be parallel to or opposite from Bond, but very comparable. I like mm. these types of villains where you can see these comparisons and you can you have to ask the question, like, how did Bond turn out good, but this particular person turn out bad? And I liked that dynamic that, that took place in this film of having, you know, for England, James, and it's 006 right. and all of these little sort of taglines that sort of showed us that the world has changed and even loyalty to your country is being changed from here on out. Yeah. Two issues I have with Trevelyan in it. One is 
I mean, talk about going the long way to get revenge. I mean, you know, his old adult life, going through the Secret Service, faking his own. I mean, this looks like a 20-year 20, a 20 plan, right? And at the time that he started this plan, you know, we didn't have electronic banking. So I don't know what, how he got to that bit. The other, the other thing is, I was going to say the last thing is, in the trailer campaign, they spoil it, right? They, they show Trevelyan as the baddie. Nah. But... Given that they were going to blow that spoiler, why not market it as 007 versus 006? Mm. Ah. I think that would have been a way better marketing angle. Yep. I mean, if, yep. if you're going to give it up anyway, why not go, you know, neck deep in it and say it's 007 versus 006, the ultimate enemy, right? Mm. Mm. Who can anticipate all these moves and has the same training and all the rest of it. Mm. I mean, the credit they spoiler, they're, they're kind it's of like... like the yeah. credits are starring Pierce Brosnan and then Sean Bean. He's like the next one right. in the credits. It's, uh, yeah, quite something. To, to, talking about the, the tank chase, that's actually one of the bits of the film that I, I don't like because I, it's too over the top with, um, and in particular, I, I hate it when he uh, drives the tank into the stat into the statue and the, the statue <laughs> is on the tank. And it, and it was just like, I, I kind of, can't exactly remember watching it, and, but I can I can kind of remember the feeling. It's just like, oh my god, why? You know why? It, the the tank chase on its own could have been good, but um, you know, and that the, the tank chase is supposed to be through St. Petersburg, and the yeah. the, the funny thing was, I, I actually went to St. Petersburg early um, nineteen ninety six, and. Uh, but it, it, when I was there, it didn't register at all that that was the city that was. Um, right. had, had they had they, fi- had they fixed Goldenham. it all up by? Like, yeah, they fixed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah if, if, if there were a few statues knocked over, maybe I, I realised a bit more. Yeah, and uh, it, it wasn't until watching it on you know VHS, I, I guess it was, and and, I, and it was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been to St Petersburg, and it does look very very much like St Petersburg so they they did a, a good job there but um you know and, and talking about these kind of these kinds of moments that just kind of really irritate me the the first one is at the start of the film and uh, you know there there's uh there's bond in his db5 and then um you know gets um involved with the the uh racing the ferrari and uh so on and the point that the film pretty much loses me is when they go past this line of bicycles you know that there must be about yeah. 20 or 30 cyclists and they just topple over like dominoes and it's like god don't do this to me please but uh, <laughs> i kind of can't forgive that oh I, I i know what you mean but that kind of humor is just intrinsically bond like there are so many moments in so many of the films where a lot of the humor is kind of eye-rolly but i find it quite cute in a way and i (laughs) no it always always irritates me and i i I was hoping for (laughs) more more serious films you know i Uh, i I, I want um, i want some humor but uh not that kind of humor (laughs) oh see this is like totally my yeah this is my vibe (laughs) so it's just it's just there in little moments it doesn't go quite as uh uh, you know, overt as a double taking pigeon or a dog looking on and then running away, but it's there. So, how do you feel about the how do you feel about the clampers in the world is not enough? 
Uh, I'm a fan. I think it's a nice little time capsule of because one of those guys was like on a reality show at the time, wasn't he? And uh, yes. yeah, I think it's it's a nice little time capsule moment. Does, does that take you out of the world? Is not enough, David? I can't. I can't. I can't even remember it. <laughs> All right. I'm thinking really hard you, too. You're, I'm like, what happened? You, 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 you like the film, so you're mentally blocking it out. That's fine. <laughs> I didn't say I loved the film. It just said it was my favourite Pierce Brosnan one, which... <laughs> oh, goodness. Faint praise. No, no, no. I, if, um, if anybody loves Pierce Brosnan's films, you know, and it doesn't matter. Me? If, yes, like Calvin... Uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Calvin or anybody else. You know, even if it's die another day, that's fine. I've got no problem with that. And uh, oh no, I, I wouldn't go that far. God, David, <laughs> taking it a bit far. Don't bring die another day into things. But, hang on, you and James need to be careful because you've got the, the somebody um, mentioned die another day. <laughs> but you've got the man with golden gu- the man with golden uh, gun fan club on here as well. So. Uh, <laughs> Oh dear! Yeah. So, uh, Lisa, you, Lisa, you mentioned you didn't like the music. Right? I think that's like the universal criticism of the film. But David, you said you didn't like some of the humor. What What are the What are the other things? Whilst, and then we'll flip to the opposite question in a minute. But what are the other things that you could airbrush out of Goldeneye to improve it? Oh, all the internet stuff's terrible. It, it's uh, that's true. It, 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 I, what they mean is what they mean is trace route, but that yes. was too complicated. And, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I was I was on to the internet pretty early, and I know that most people uh, it didn't you know it, it didn't bother them at all. It was just something techy. But it, it, again, it, it's something that really takes me out of films if they if they do tech stuff and it's that wrong. Yeah, I think it was a good idea of a plot device about tracking where the villain was. It's a, in concept, good idea. In execution, awful. Yeah. And the thing that always cracks me up is when Natalia goes to the IBM dealer in Russia to ask for her 486s. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> this is dated. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking about the representation of women as computer programmers. And of course, I'm thinking of the Fast and Furious uh, movies. I think I'm thinking of the Fast and Furious movies. Is there a computer programmer that's part of it? Maybe. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure, but there tends to be almost like the nerdy guy and like a woman who is is beautiful, but who tends to be like over-sexualized and constantly like there has to be like a bikini moment where she's represented to show a sense of femininity. And it's it's almost like this trope that I've seen in many different films. Um, And I don't know where its origin is, but this is definitely with sort of the, the rise of internet culture and computer programming, a representation because she does have her sort of white bikini moment, which I was wondering where she got the bikini from because she wasn't wearing a bikini in the car and I don't remember them right. taking bags out of their cars. But anyways, that's <laughs> a continuity well, thing that's besides J- the point. Yeah, J- Jack Wade's going to get a surprise when he pops the trunk of that car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's, the same, um, it's the same kind of uh, planning your your baggage as happened in Spectre with uh, That's Bond, right. uh, uh, Bond and Madeline heading, heading for Morocco and suddenly on the train they had evening wear. So, uh, yeah. That's right? right. Like where did the gown come from? Who And who has a seafoam gown? 
Like just even the, I've got issues with the gown anyways. I'm like, it's just like the color. And I get she's walking towards Bond and I see the water imagery and like I can I can I can argue for it. But gosh, that is an ugly dress. <laughs> I'm trying not to be judgmental, but it's so terrible. And I remember seeing all of like the merchandise for that film that are marketed towards women. And one of them is you can have a gown like hers. And I'm like, really? Like that's the, 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 the merchandise that I get to have is a seafoam green gown. Like you can't give me a cool watch or anything like that. Anyway, (laughs) I have issues. I'm just angry about that gown. I'm sorry. That's something they are probably addressing in this next one. So, you know, the, the, you know, the accessories and the gadgets, but Mm -hmm. I think Brosnan's outfits in, in GoldenEye early in the film where he's going through a couple of different suits, haven't dated that well. He looks too skinny. They look too baggy compared to other bonds. I think he looks a bit like a, he looks underweight in the casino scene for the tuxedo. Yeah, I, but I, I think it's a better fit than Timothy Dalton with the kind of very kind of uh, baggy '80s suits, though, isn't it? And the leather jacket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think it's just that um, at the yeah at the time everything kind of hung off you a bit bit more it, it was far less fitted and uh like he's very slim he's very slim in the scene where he's with um the, the 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 swimming scene in the pool in the hotel and he's sort of walking to get his towel like he's very trim and slim and i think mm. and he's still he's a very slim man in general but i think that he weighs a little bit more as we start moving through his era right mm. that, that kind of happens called age <laughs> it happens it happens nice to have a hairy bond again as well like since uh, sean connery it's nice to have a bond with some chest hair okay well <laughs> so, so what aspect of the film calvin are you what, <laughs> what aspect of the film calvin were you were, are you kind of cool on other than other than the obvious music and uh, some of the other big ones, is there anything particular, maybe nuanced, that you like? Oh, oof. oh God! Uh, oof! The music is really the only thing I can often point to. I can point to like uh, issues with logic and story and plotting in the first half an hour. Certainly, I mean, what are the chances that oh, that lady who wanted to have a impromptu drag race with me right. uh, just outside of Monaco ends up being a very crucial figure in the mission that I'm going to go on with my former colleague. And why would, or why would they even bother going through the uh, charade of having Orumov shoot Sean Bean in the head and pretending to be dead if they were going to try and kill Bond anyway. And right. when Bond was surrendering and coming out anyway. Um, so yeah, there are issues with the writing. None of it bothers me at all. I can live with it. Uh, I think the music is quite possibly the only thing I'm cool on. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, David might explode when I say this, but uh, this is probably the the most perfect Bond adventure um, that I've ever (laughs) experienced. Uh, Like, this just has it all. It it has everything for me. I, uh, yeah, I don't think it's lacking anything apart from maybe a, better score i'm not going to explode i'm I'm perfectly happy with that (laughs) calvin (laughs) you got a different taste to me that's all 
but Thunderball. I, feel- I don't know. I don't know how you can rank that so uh, so badly. No, well. <laughs> Yes. One day we'll get to the influence of Thunderball uh, podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do it slow motion. Uh, <laughs> but even just to talk about the music, because I know we've we've kind of dogged on it. I, there, there is an element of it that I think suits the film really well, and I don't know if that's just because I can picture this film in my mind like the entire two hours i know it so well and the music is just intrinsically linked to it through uh, familiarity but or maybe it's the the game that kind of emulates that same style there is something quite nice about it particularly in the pre-credit sequence there's the bit where uh brosnan's coming down the stairs and he's just kind of gliding down and we get this very bombastic's probably the wrong word i don't quite know how to articulate what style yeah. of music this is but uh a lot of I, percussion. I do, yeah, I do like the Goldeneye Overture, and I really like the big drums. That's the, the one. big yeah. drums. Yeah. yeah. That's, like, the best part of the whole soundtrack, which is, yeah, not so much really, but... Um, yeah. I mean, it, that, that when that kicks in, and I think a lot of that was carried over also into the game, because mm. if somebody... If, 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 if you would, you know, if I meant... If I'm trying to, like, bring back the feeling of the music about going like sometimes the game soundtrack kicks into my head more than the movie because <laughs> those tracks are so i mean if you go on youtube and just look at like goldeneye the game remix cover version whatever there's like 10 times more people recreating music from the game than the film mm. Mm. oh yeah it's iconic in its own rights yeah but it feels so works for the pre-credit sequence like with the type of mission that is going on and sort of the spy work but the second like bond is running towards the airplane like mm. i i want something more bondish and something that is a little bit more sweeping and i feel as though there's moments where you get sort of the bond score during the tank sequence and there's a little bit more of like a melodic score near the yeah. end but mm. so much of it i feel as though there's just a lot of moments where I wanted something a bit more. And I also don't think that the title track was all that great. And as I was like listening to it and I'm like, and people are complaining about Billie Eilish's like, you know, Bond song, <laughs> it made me actually like no time to die a lot more simply in comparison to what I was listening to, which is definitely like 90s style, but it's not mm-hmm. something that I feel has aged well since. And maybe that's the issue, but I just felt like the general score being put through maybe the first half of the film was just completely lacking where I think it's appropriate for the spy mission. But when Bond starts doing like really amazing stuff, I need a soundtrack that's going to make me think he's amazing rather Mm. than a soundtrack that's not there. And I think that like lack of sound can work. Like a film like Haywire with Gina Carano where it's mixed martial arts and the whole goal of it is to show us that it is, you know, it's it's realism, that she's a real authentic fighter and not having the music distract you but emphasizing the punching sounds. I think that like that can work in some respects, but just the lack of soundtrack pushing me around in a Bond film when music is such a central aspect, when I am socialized through watching Bond and maybe I've just been spoiled by John Barry soundtracks, you know, that there are going to be these moments and I'm going to be brought through um, 
I just, I, I want or expect that in a Bond film. And I really feel as though GoldenEye lacks. And maybe some of our feelings towards GoldenEye might change um, if we did have music that was uh, pushing our emotions in a different way. Maybe then we could overlook like um, errors in, in, in the, in the storyline or, or aspects of the script. I, mm. I think I think if it had a, a better score, I, I think I'd probably rate the film higher because uh, yeah, yeah, music's very very important. I don't think it's even just about the quality of the score. I think the how the score is pitched in certain scenes is completely off the mark with what is intended from that scene. Uh, the yeah. scene with um, Bond and Xenia uh, playing cards, like the music for that is this very soft, almost romantic sort of theme when you listen to it in isolation. But then if you look at that scene without the music, if you watch it on mute, it's a lot of very, it's supposed to be tense. It's these a cat and yeah. mouse game as the pair are playing cards. Cards and it just doesn't play up that tension at all. It, if you if you're paying attention to the music, you'd think it was trying to sell you that she's going to be, you know, the main Bond girl, Bond woman, Bond right. heroine of the of the film. Yeah. yeah, it is out of place. Oh, that reminds me. It reminds me of something else that I don't like about the film. And this is being a Canadian. I just want to throw this out there: the Admiral from Canada. Yeah, well, that's our representation in a Vaughn film. I well. thought, this, was, this is our representation. So well, I wasn't a fan. It was originally a, a American military figure, but as as was at the time and still is to some degree, uh, the CIA's script review process meant that they actually requested a change to not be an American. So they made it Canadian. Mm-hmm. Blame um, Canada. Blame Canada. And, you know, We'll get to release the news at some point, but you know, Canada and No Time to Die. There's a lot of overlap and stuff that we're not going to see now. But um, mm. but yeah, they stepped in. And back, going back onto the music thing, um, I know it's kind of known in some pockets, but John Altman was like parachuted in mm. to rescore the tank chase, and that music isn't on the soundtrack. Um, it's the release, the CD release, but it's actually in the film. And he started. I think the story goes they called him on a Friday, and he recorded it on Tuesday. Wow! So that, for that, for the tank chase in the film, which is why that I think the tank it helps the tank chase. But apparently, the original score, I mean, which is out there, there's a bootleg of it of the tank chase by Sarah is dreadful. I mean, if you think the music during the Ferrari DB5 chase, bloop 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 bloop, is bad, <laughs> the chase is something else. So they did try and save a bit of it. Hmm. I think I'm going to go back with David and the things that, apart from the music, the thing I don't like is the the tech is is has been horribly dated. With it, the exception, it was way off with the, the time. Yeah, with the exception of the EMP part of it, which is totally relevant um, and was factually accurate, and has you know been recycled since for movie plots. So, and, which and- itself was a recycle of a, a throwaway line in a View to a Kill about electromagnetic pulses wiping out Mm. computers. Which uh, has reminded me something else about uh, GoldenEye, and that is locations, and that is uh, back in 2005. uh, My wife was working in Puerto Rico for a a couple of months, and so I joined her for about six weeks out there, and... uh, the dish at the end of GoldenEye is the Arecibo uh, radio telescope, and we went and mm. visited it. 
and you know it's it's uh, it's in the middle of you know you, you need to drive in inland. Well, Puerto Rico is not uh, very uh, large, really. It's I can't remember how, how many miles it is north to south, but uh, you know somewhere probably about a third of the way from the north shore in in the hills, and uh, you get you um, drive along this long, long winding road. Uh, with trees everywhere and uh you find yourself at the radio telescope and uh mm. that, that's quite quite an impressive thing to, to visit if you're ever, ever in puerto rico sadly mm. it's actually in disrepair now i think yeah the um, hurricane hurricane maria uh ruined it i think i i, I don't know if it's operational yeah. at all there you know I, i've got some very good friends out there so uh, it's uh, yeah been sad the way it's been treated by uh, the lack of funding after the hurricanes and also things like um, the uh, coronavirus not having any testing kits there for a long time. Yeah, Puerto Rico's had a, a rough end of the stick for, for many years now as part of the United States yeah. government. Yeah, yeah. so um, ending on a happy note, um, if you had to pick a couple of things that you think really stand out from Goldeneye that you know stand the test of time and are really highlights of the film would anybody like to go first to, to pick some things out maybe David you should go first because you you know it's, oh, slim, pickings. it's, it's I, slim pickings for you isn't it so, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want the things you get to you would choose to be taken by somebody else so uh, yeah well um, you better you better have somebody go ahead of me because I can't think of anything that's a highlight particularly uh, I, well I know okay I, I guess the highlight is that Bond was back. It's it's not uh, it's not a moment in the film. It's just that, that Bond was back, and it was with uh, you know, different producers, and uh, it, it in a in a post cubby broccoli world. And uh, oh, I, I think he was still alive at that point, wasn't wasn't he? But not involved. Oh, he was. Yes, yeah. but he wasn't actively on. Yeah, the but he he, he wasn't. Um, he got a credit, but he he wasn't he wasn't um, actually producing the film, and I I think that that's very 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 important. And uh, you know, without without Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson actually uh, continuing in his his footsteps, and you know, uh, I think you know you you can look back and think that it it was inevitable that it would happen but you know equally uh they could have decided that that they weren't up to it 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 had always been uh cubby's show and so they wanted to do something else and uh so yeah uh and and especially after the the, the break so uh as um it's simply that bond continued that that is the highlight uh, of it for me, I think. I think a highlight for me is the introduction of Bond. Like the first thing that we see is him running across um, a dam and then Bungie jumping down and into the mission. And I, I, I love that as an introduction. I thought that that was sort of brilliant um, in the fact that, I mean, there's no fear, there's no hesitation. I like the fact that he had that special gun that he could just reel himself in. <laughs> Whoever did that stunt is great. Um, I bought it and I, I enjoyed that being the introduction. I also really liked um, 
the fact that we get money penny dating somebody else, you know, and, and, and talking to bond, she comes in and she's dressed really nice. And she says, I'm out. I was out with a gentleman. We went to the theater. What do you think I do waiting at home for you all the time? Um, and I think it goes, and I mean, we've talked on different podcasts about Money Penny, the character, and the fact that there was this idea that Money Penny was married to the job, and that you know, women in the service, at least in Ian Fleming's uh, viewpoint, that they weren't supposed to have lives outside of 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 the office. And I like the fact that we have her having a life, and also when we introduce Judy Dench, I mean, she lets us know again. We have to ask, was it necessary? But she says, if I want to have sarcasm, I'd ask my kids. And, you know, she's also showing that she's in a position of power. She actually has a life outside of the service, um, replete with children. Um, And I think that that was important. So for me, I felt like there was just a better rounding of some of the female characters. And then I'll go to um, uh, uh, Zenya Onatop. You know, James Bond does have a license to kill, but it's a gendered license to kill. He really doesn't kill women or hurt them in the same way as they come at or after him. Um, And oftentimes, if he does kill someone like Naomi in the helicopter scene, he's underwater. She's in the air. There's a distance there. Um, There really isn't any sort of like close contact leading up to um, the death. And here you have Zenya on a top. beating up bond and, 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 and saying she's going to come after, you know, Natalia saying it's your turn next. And you see bond instead of shooting her, if he had a gun in his hand, which is interesting, uh, he didn't just shoot at her. He shot up at the, um, the helicopter, but she's killed by bond and she's killed in the ironic way. Right. So as somebody who asphyxiates men with her legs, she's killed in a similar fashion with the, with the tree looking like a pair of legs itself. And so you do see this trend of bond actually coming forward and, and killing people who are coming after him, regardless of their sex or gender expression. And I thought that that was an interesting um, development rather than the, some of the double standards like women can hurt Bond, but Bond really can't do much back. Or he usually waits waits for Spectre or other agents to sort of do that that dirty work. Um, he's somebody who's being a lot more active um, in, in in terms of taking out his enemies. I hadn't thought about it like that way before. That's really interesting, Lisa. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's really hard for me to pick out one particular element because I uh, I, I just love this whole film i think it's just pure escapist entertainment i never get bored of it i didn't need to rewatch it for this uh recording but i did it's uh i mean yeah when you talk about bond elements like you know bond the women the villains the cars the gadgets the locations all of those things just are, are working perfectly in this i i'd hate to think how i would feel about the movie if the music was much better uh i I don't know if I could um, process such perfection, but it really, uh, it really is up there. Uh, I think I, if I had to pick out one element, just talk about a little more. I think it is the villains. I don't think there's ever yep. been as perfect an ensemble of villains in Bond as this. Yeah, there are other films where you know there might be a really iconic villain here or there, but I think to get as many as they get right in this is really something else. I love that 006, 007 going up against 006 
graphics is just perfect. And then Xenia on a top is the perfect femme fatale villain um, of the series. And then Boris yeah. is just so much fun as well. Orumov, I think, is a really underrated character. And for, for a good chunk of the film, we kind of follow as if he is the main villain. Right. He's sort of like the villain with most authority for a, for a good chunk of the film. Um yeah, I, I think the villains in this are terrific. Uh, pretty much every element works uh, so well, including Brosnan himself. Uh, it's about as perfect as a Bond film can get for me. Awesome. I was going to ta- I was going to say the same thing about the ensemble villains, Calvin, because ah. one of the criticisms of License to Kill is there's like a group of baddies and mm-hmm. they're kind of interchangeable and they don't have personalities outside of Sanchez. That's how you don't do it. Goldeneye mm-hmm. is how you, how you do it. Right, where they're all high contrast personalities that have all got their own motivations and backstories, and mm. I think I don't think we'll ever see better casting on a set of baddies in a Bond film than Goldeneye. I think it's just that's the, to me the standout. The other thing mm. is, <clears throat> I know I watched it recently again, and the way that Goldeneye is lit is different to any other film in the series. Mm. And the shadows and the contrasts and the use of light in Goldeneye, and this is a really arty-farty thing to say, so I apologize. But the way that the sets are lit, the shadows are darker. They use shadow and light a lot in this film to reveal characters and motivations and stuff. That, that to me, it's just got a very different look. Once you start noticing it, the look of the film is very different, I think, to anything else in the franchise. And that's, mm. that's what I like about it. It's unique in that sense. Interesting. Yeah. I have thought of a moment in Goldeneye that I do really like, by the way. Oh? Mm. The end? <laughs> no, there, there's James a... James will return. <laughs> there, there's, um, there's a scene when Bond and Natalia are on the beach, and I, I guess they, they've, already, they've already arrived in Cuba and just uh, yeah. thinking about the next steps of, of the mission. And I think uh, it... Um, it slows everything down for a moment and it kind of reminds you that James Bond is a, is a real person uh, with, um, with with his own doubts about how to do it. And, uh, and for, for me, I, I, I do remember watching that and thinking that, yeah, this is, I, I want to see more of this in the Bond films. So, uh, yeah, it's... It's funny you should mention that, Dave, because a lot of the criticism of the film, of Brosnan's performance, is actually of that scene, and it's like it's a bit soap opery from from Brosnan. But I think that's can I don't think of another time in Brosnan's era where he does reflect on the consequences of his actions and the job he's got to do. Because I think Brosnan's Bond is like the I'm happy to do my job Bond. Yeah, all the others have moments, you know, where they they hate their job or they don't agree with it or they're going to do it reluctantly. Brosnan seems to be like. I'm going on an adventure, yay! Yeah, because <laughs> this harks back to the to the books, really. When you know uh, Bond isn't this kind of super yes. confident character, yeah. he he does doubt whether he's got it in him to continue, and he doesn't know how he's going to do it. And uh, and so this this is this is probably the, the first real example of it in the films. Can I raise another issue? Just something I was thinking about right now that I didn't like about the film that still makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Um, 
I, I mean, I've done a lot of research looking at the Connery era Bond, and my students have issues with the way that James Bond approaches women. And there's a lot of harassment and sexual coercion. And there's a scene in Goldeneye where uh, Sean Bean is, or or whatever his name is in it, uh, is arguing that you know you know Bond and I share everything, and he approaches Natalia and he forces a kiss on her and she pushes him away. And then when we get to the beach scene where they're having that conversation, he also does the same approach. Um, and she push she pushes uh, away and then eventually just decides, okay, I like Bond better. And I find that that sort of like aggressive um, approach um, of sort of forcing yourself on a woman was a little bit troublesome and problematic like that's very reminiscent of say the connery era and i don't think that that's that type of approach is something that um has aged well and and Mm -hmm. as much as the film is trying to be more progressive in terms of the way it's representing women and talking about sexual harassment still the way that bond is interacting with women or MI6 agents apparently interact with women. There still are these like scenes where I'm like, have we really gone that that much further? So I just wanted to throw that one out there. I just I was reminded about it, um, and and just throwing it out there. And you can sort of just flip that back with things that I didn't like. <laughs> no, I, I, I hadn't actually thought that. I hadn't thought of that before, Lisa. It's just an, it's an echo of how Trevelyan treats her as well. Only right, just completely right. different outcomes. Mm. Completely different outcomes. Yep. Mm. Yeah. But when Trevelyan does it, it's bad. But when Bond does it, it's good. And yet it's the yeah. exact same conduct. So Yes. And the, mm. the strawberries line, by the way, is a hangover from the early script. Um, when Anyway, I don't want to spoil it because we'll probably do a podcast about the early script. But that's there's, there's hangovers in Goldeneye which make no sense unless you know like where the first draft came from. Like uh, Jack Wade's character was keen on gardening. And there's loads of gardening lines in the early <laughs> scripts which get lost. So at the end, he says tobacco plants, and you're like, "Why does he like tobacco plants?" Well, <laughs> there's no, there's no, it doesn't make any sense. So these things kind of like it just goes to show you if you're working on a film or a production, I mean, the, the things that you get cut out and lost over the, you kind of forget it. You still think they're in there, and then they make it to the final print, and like, uh, what? You know, I always wondered what that gardening line from Jack Wade was about when they first meet, and he's like, "Hey, Bond, do you do any gardening?" And I'm like, "I was just yeah. like, well, he's got a tattoo of a rose on his ass, so I guess maybe it's to do with that, or maybe like no. Bond was the name of an American gardening TV presenter. No. That's maybe it's a cult, you know, a, a, of the time thing. That's really no. interesting. I've never Jack read Wade that. Has a green, he's got a he's got a green thumb, and the the jokes were all through the film, and ah. they just. They put the beginning and the end and missed the middle out, which huh. made no sense. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. All right. So, Lisa, you said you didn't like the song. No. So I'm going to try and change your mind about it. Oh, gosh. So, um, you know that thing like it's really popular, misheard lyrics. Okay. You know, where people go around for years thinking a song says something and they don't. So I got a special treat. So bear that in mind. Right. This is a Polish three piece. Uh, so English is a second language. So, you know, given that, but uh, they do a really different arrangement of Goldeneye. The song. Okay. Um, so you've got to forgive them that the lyrics are wrong. And uh, <laughs> some, sometimes hilariously, uh, if you listen closely. Um, but I, I really like this. I actually prefer the arrangement to the Tina Turner song. So uh-huh. that's what we will play out on tonight. Thank you very much for joining us, David, Lisa and Calvin. 
Thank you. Um, Thank this you. was supposed to be like an uplifting, positive, like, gold no is great, it reignited a new generation of fans, and we ended up just pulling the film apart. But that's <laughs> Not me. <laughs> you, you just need to edit uh, Lisa and me out and uh, leave it with me out. Right. <laughs> well, thanks again, everybody, and uh, catch you again next time. Reflections on the water More than darkness into dust See him surface and never a shadow On a wind I feel his breath Golden night, no time his witness Golden night, he'll do what I please Golden night, no time for the sweetness For beat the keys will bring him to his knees He'll never know how I wash you from the shadows as a child